Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI powered all star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at Shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to Shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Hello and welcome to another Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Hope you enjoyed yesterday's Arscast Extra. James is back from his holidays. Misfortune befell him on his holidays. I'm sure that's no surprise to you. Make sure you listen to that if you haven't already. But I did promise we'd have an Arscast today if I could get something arranged. And thankfully, I did get that thing arranged. And that was to talk to the BBC's David Ornstein, who uh, I'm sure many of you follow on Twitter and see as a very uh, reliable source of Arsenal news, particularly during the transfer windows. So we were able to chat about Alexis, that situation, Manchester City versus Manchester United, Mkhitaryan coming the other way, uh, the Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang pursuit, why that meant Olivier Giroud had to go to Chelsea, and uh, and lots more, of course, there was uh, power plays, dynamic shifting behind the scenes at Arsenal with Ivan Gazidis and his team, heavily involved in transfers, and very publicly heavily involved in transfers as well. So look, I'm not going to do a big long intro into this one because myself and David spoke for about an hour last night and that's uh, that's what you're here for that's the good stuff the juicy stuff so let's get on with it this is myself and David Ornstein chatting transfers and the amazing January transfer window David hi how are you hi Andrew I'm very well thank you you've been kept busy in this month that's for sure just a bit, just a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back to before this month began and, and maybe last December. Arsene Wenger talked a little bit about what he planned to do in the January transfer window. On the one hand, he said it would be great if the January transfer window was closed. That way it wouldn't be destabilizing. Clubs wouldn't be, you know, running around like crazy. But at the same time, he said explicitly and more than once that he wanted to do business. Now we hear Arsene Wenger talking about, yes, I want to do business. If an opportunity presents itself, we'll be there. We want to strengthen our squad, etc., etc. But um, as far as you're aware, what did Arsenal have planned for January? Was the Alexis thing sort of hanging over everything? Well, Arsene Wenger coming into pretty much every window uh, during his reign as Arsenal manager has said he would like one, possibly two 
I think is the exact quote. And yeah. uh, this time he got that pretty much spot on. But if we take it back to Alexis, yeah, last summer, he, of course, almost joined Manchester City on deadline day. And there was very clearly uh, an understanding between both parties, as in Manchester City and Alexis on that occasion, mm. that if the opportunity arose, they would still be interested in bringing him uh, to the Etihad in January. Uh, and so I think his his mind was focused on that. I, I don't really buy into... Um, the suggestions that he he's been useless for Arsenal, but he clearly hasn't been um, at the standards that Arsenal fans and and the public have come to expect from him. I don't think he down tools. I don't think Alexis Sanchez can do that. Yeah. But he he certainly wasn't at full throttle. Uh, and I think Arsenal, to be fair, um, had sort of. Uh, come to the acceptance even at, uh, in the, at the end of the summer window that uh, he would probably go in January. Uh, you know, Arsene Wenger publicly said that he was happy to keep him, Mesut Ozil, Jack Wilshere until the end of their contracts and that this is a is going to be a growing phenomenon that, that um, players are going to become free agents so that you get the footballing value out of them even if you can't sign them to new contracts. But I think he and they knew that um, they needed to try and recoup some money for him uh, in in January with the very real prospect at that point in time of, of losing Ozil for free yeah. in the summer. Was there a, Were and, there issues with Alexis in terms of what was going on behind the scenes? Because we hear about how he was disruptive. Arsene Wenger said more than once that he was professional. He was always dedicated. He was always 100% committed. Um, wh- where was the, 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 the line there between his natural desire to play football and always win, which I think we've all seen in the three, three and a half years that he played, but also perhaps the the human element of it, the human interactions within the dressing room where he was a difficult character at times. Yeah, that's a really good question because, um, uh, you know, Arsene Wenger has never done anything other than defend his players in public. Uh, he's always got their backs. He's an incredible manager in that sense, uh, incredibly loyal in a way that somebody like perhaps Jose Mourinho hasn't always been to, to his players. They've clearly got different ways of, um, of, of sort of managing their players in public. And um, and even when Alexis Sanchez had an altercation in, in training last season, I think it was with Lauren Koscielny, it was a very big mm. story. Um, and that was factually correct. All the stories that came out, I know for a fact that that happened uh, from a number of people who saw it and, and were there at the time. But Arsene Wenger flatly denied it, if you remember. <laughs> yeah. um, not for the first time um, being economical with the truth. Uh, and well, the dressing room understand- is sacred sacrosanct isn't it i think that's you know that's an immutable law of football in a way and you can admire him for yeah, that yeah. um but uh, but uh, alexis has never been one of the more popular players in the dressing room uh, you may have seen an interview with francis coquelin uh on mm. uh, football focus shortly after joining valencia saying that these stories were nonsense uh, they weren't and um he, look when I don't think anybody said it from a hostile point of view. I don't think they were having fights every week, but but he just wasn't one of the mo- more popular. He, he yeah. didn't socialise with many of the guys. He he was uh, he kept himself to himself with Atom and Humber, um, <laughs> and and th- that was Alexis. He's a winner. Um, he 
he expected incredibly high standards of himself and the team. And as many people have said before me, uh, you don't need to be friends with, with all of your colleagues or your teammates on a, on a football or sports team to, to uh, get on well. And, um, and that was the case with him. I actually think uh, from my vague understanding of, of the last six months or so that he probably was um, <laughs> disruptive is probably the wrong word, but we'll use it on this occasion. He was probably at his least disruptive um, since the summer move collapsed and, and the January move happened. And that was perhaps symptomatic. That that was perhaps more indicative of a downing of tools, so to speak. I, I wouldn't call it that, but um, yeah. perhaps he, 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 he got on best with everyone because he knew he was probably off in January and he he perhaps didn't um have his heart in it quite like how he did before um like he'd spent three years trying to get people to to do or behave in the way that he wanted to and realized after three years it wasn't going to happen so uh, come January he's gonna go yeah and so that's why I, I think it was you know from the club's perspective a fairly amicable departure uh, notable i'm not the first person to po- point this out but it was notable that there were no uh, not that i saw anyway any sort of farewell messages from his teammates mm. um in a way you might have expected and and you, you've seen from other players i was actually told um uh by a couple of people uh, i, I, I this isn't verified in terms of it being sort of concrete information, but I was told by a couple of people that Arsenal didn't actually make Alexis Sanchez a new contract offer. Um, Mm. And that they, I'm sure they would argue in that sense that they knew exactly what he would have wanted. And so didn't go and knew they couldn't go near it. And so there was no point coming to the table, but a couple of people have told me that, you know, he, he did love his time at Arsenal and perhaps that was reflected in his farewell messages on social media and that he wasn't, um, sort of actively, um, uh, explicitly pressing for the move. I know his, his representatives and Fernando Filisevic would have been doing it on his behalf, but I don't think he was causing trouble at all. Um, in a, not too dissimilar way to Olivier Giroud. He had no desire to leave. You know, Alexis, of course, wanted to further himself, but he wasn't rocking the boat uh, to leave. Arsenal didn't offer him a a new contract, and I think it suited everyone for him to leave in January, not just him. Right. So, look, we all had the expectation that if he were going to leave... He would go to Manchester City because the interest was clearly there uh, with them last summer. There was a bid on the table from them last summer. There's the whole uh, Pep Guardiola connection. He's worked with them before at Barcelona. In the back of my mind, there was always this thing, though, about do Manchester City actually need Alexis Sanchez when you're 12 points, 15 points clear at the top of the Premier League table? My thinking was... When it comes to the Champions League, here's a guy who's experienced and who could do that. But uh, it became apparent after a while that their interest was cooled slightly and Manchester United's interest was very, very real. And that was something when it first happened, I thought there's no way that could happen. There's no way that Arsenal will sell or do a deal with Manchester United. And I was thinking particularly because of the enmity between uh, Arsene Wenger and Jose Mourinho. I felt like Arsene Wenger, of all the managers in the world who he wouldn't want to deal with, wouldn't deal with him. But when you talk about a a manager doing what he thinks is the right thing for a player, 
I guess you kind of have to look at it from that point of view as well, where he's been able, in some ways, to put that to one side and and do a deal with Manchester United, or at least sanction a deal with Manchester United uh, that the club took care of. When was it clear that the United interest was really real and they were after him in a big way? Well, it seems, and th- this has emerged from some, some of my colleagues, it, it wasn't my information, that Manchester United expressed a willingness to um, do a deal for Sanchez after the City move collapsed on the final day of the transfer window in the summer. So basically, the 1st of September, they, they suggested that at the next available opportunity, they they would be able to do a deal for him. Since Between then and pretty much that week when the deal happened, I don't think there was any significant contact. But this is a fascinating story that I'm sure we'll hear more about all about one day when Alexis speaks in detail or writes a book or or the famous book that Arsene Wenger's promised for about 20 years <laughs> uh, one day when he retires. But um, so I spoke to somebody quite close to Sanchez uh, last year who said that I, I, I put, you know, before the Manchester City um, saga even came up at the end of last summer and I mentioned City and, and that person said, no, you know, don't think he'd want to move there. And as time went on, the Pep narrative built, uh, despite the fact that Pep sold him from City. Um, and Pep from was Barcelona. complimentary about him. Sorry, from Barcelona. Yeah, Pep sold him when he was at Barcelona. And the narrative built up that he was dead set for City. And, you know, we, we'd speak to people at City and, and they kind of entertained it. But don't don't forget that they didn't seriously come in for him until the final hours of the summer transfer window. So it wasn't like they they were making a, a, a strong pursuit of him all summer, like you would if you really wanted a player. And then January comes round, and we all assumed that he was going to go to City. And I think if um, the numbers were right, it would have happened. But when you speak to people at City, I don't know if this is just a safe face, but they said they didn't seriously come to the table in January either. So it mm. begs the question, and, and that they were, they would have been keen to do the deal next summer, the summer of 2018, which begs the question, in reality, were City ever strongly interested in bringing Alexis Sanchez to the Etihad? Oh. I had the same view as, as you. I didn't mm. see that they really needed him and I didn't think he would significantly improve him okay all City fans were saying but what if Sane gets injured and lo and behold he has and you know they then went for Riyad Mahrez so the the suggestions that Alexis was more one for the summer they felt they had enough attacking options you know Gabriel Jesus was already injured and they were still saying that so it and Sane gets injured, and then they bring, and then they go for Mares. That yeah. sort of suggests that they wanted an attacker, but they weren't fully on board with this Sanchez deal. Meanwhile, back to your original point, Manchester United came in that week, as we all saw, and came in strong. And um, what and was the deal was done? Yeah. The, sorry, the deal was done very quickly, and and two interesting things around that. I don't know if all players say this, but in his statements, Alexis said. Um, that Manchester United was the team he had supported. Now, I know a lot of players say it was my dream to join this club or that club. Like the, the, Robbie, the Robbie Keane edict. That's what that is. <laughs> Joining my boyhood club. <laughs> I think there, there, there are quotes from Henrik Mkhitaryan having said, 
every club that he's joined is a dream come true or something. <laughs> but, um, but, but Alexis claimed that this was the club he supported. And in terms of your, your question about Arsene Wenger, well, I think we overplay this thing a little bit about selling to your rivals. Yes, Chelsea denied Arsenal Denver Bar on transfer deadline day in 2012 or something. Um, but uh, no, sorry, it was, it was 2013, I think. But um, but you know, Arsenal selling Giroud to Chelsea, a, a rival. Well, they were the only club who he really wanted to go to in the end. Uh, Alexis Sanchez was only had one option in the end financially, Manchester United. So what were Arsenal going to do? Hold on to him and lose him in the summer and have a player who hasn't really wanted to be, you know, hasn't Mm. played with all his heart for the first six months of the season, doing the same for the second. The whole reason Arsene Wenger kept him was in the hope that he would play at full throttle and he hasn't done. So so they didn't have any other options. I I was one of a number of people that was told that... um, Real Madrid had expressed an interest and Sanchez would have liked that. But I think um, realistically for those numbers and the competition that he wanted to play in, which is the Premier League, Manchester United was the only option. And that's why Arsene Wenger did the deal, irrespective of Mourinho. Mm. So when when it became clear that United was the only option, what were, what were the terms on offer to Arsenal? Was it a cash-only deal? Were they prepared to just pay a transfer fee for him? And then we get the idea, we get the, the situation where a player swap comes in and Arsenal obviously have brought in Henri- Henrik Mkhitaryan uh, in exchange for uh, Alexis Sanchez. Did Arsenal, as far as you're aware, push for any other players from Manchester United? Did, did they suggest uh, one or two or three? Did they have a short list of players that they would have accepted? How, how did mm. it go down? Well, you and I know that that, uh, from (laughs) my perspective, at the beginning of the January window, I was working on a number of stories and wasn't really close to to all of this. I I didn't think it was going to be a particularly busy window. Mm. Um, And that my stance very quickly changed on that. Um, And the the information that, that I established fairly early on but I didn't report it because I was I was on some other stories and it was contrary to what other people were saying, um, was that Arsenal were looking at a swap deal from pre- pretty early on. I don't know exactly how early, um, but I didn't hear... Uh, OK, so so when the move... Uh, when the balance shifted in publicly anyway from Manchester City to Manchester United there was this consensus that it was going to be a £35 million deal. The first phone call I made on this story, I was told, straight swap, no money involved. And just because I hadn't been particularly across it, I kind of held back on that for a bit, thinking, no, 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 you know, everybody's suggesting there's going to be money involved. But yeah, it it seems that that was um, the message coming to us pretty much straight away. Um, And... Uh, I remember speaking to Mkhitaryan's camp and they were suggesting that this, well, it's it's been made public now, Mino Raiola was suggesting that he had put this deal to Arsenal and Manchester United at the beginning of the January transfer window, which you may remember tallies with reports that he had been seen at the Arsenal training ground meeting with Dick Law. Now, we don't want to sort of pander to... Mino Raiola's ego here <laughs> but it you know we know the power of agents these days and there would be some I think there's some credence to that that he put this suggestion to the two clubs 
Um, he's got great influence at Manchester United, less so, of course, at Arsenal. I don't think he had any players there. But as soon as you heard that that meeting had taken place with Dick Law at London Colney, you're starting to think, you know what, he probably did put that on the table. Mm. And it was a swap deal from early on with no cash involved. Um, of course, if Mkhitaryan hadn't agreed to that move, then... There's a chance Manchester United would have um, would have put some cash up, but one of my colleagues, Simon Stone at the BBC, who who covers Manchester United, had been guided very heavily towards there'll be no signings at Manchester United for cash without sales first this January window, and a lot of people sort of scoffed at that when he reported it at the start, and so it proved. Right, I mean it's amazing, isn't it, to think that an agent is the guy who's brokering probably the biggest deal of the the January transfer window, certainly the most well-publicized deal of the January transfer window. You know, it struck me perhaps that Arsenal might have been interested in someone like Anthony Martial, but if if it was Mino Raiola that was driving the whole thing, then it had to be a Mino Raiola player. He, mm-hmm. he, he wanted clearly to get Mkhitaryan out of Manchester United. And uh, we know, of course, that Arsene Wenger was very close to bringing Henrik Mkhitaryan into Arsenal in 2016 yeah. uh, that summer, but that deal didn't go through uh, because of, well, various reasons, one of which was that you know they decided to hold on to, to Alexis Sanchez. So it mm. wasn't as if Arsenal were being foisted with a player that the manager didn't rate to some extent anyway. Absolutely not. Yeah, uh, Arsenal, um, Arsenal have been on the case with Mkhitaryan for years. Uh, I've, I've heard his name mentioned in, in the corridors of power for quite a long time. And um, and that 2016 move was thought at the time by some people to have been done. Uh, Ars- yeah. you know, it, Arsenal thought they had him and I think he thought he was going there. But um, Manchester United, it seems, came in, came in with a bigger financial offer. We don't know all the ins and outs of these things. But there's always been sort of mutual respect there. And look, I, I, I'd be lying if I said I thought Arsenal had been planning this. Um, yeah. We know, and, and we know, I'm not trying to have a dig at Arsenal. No, I know, many I know. Of these, many of these clubs, things just fall into place with, you know, football. And, and it's understandable to an extent, um, but still staggering is, is one of the most, or the clubs are some of the most poorly planned uh, operations in any industry and relative to the money it, it's jaw-dropping how bad the planning is and, and foresight at many of these uh, organizations but um, in terms of Mkhitaryan yeah it, it, it was it felt it fell together nicely because he was a player they liked and I think there's a lot of satisfaction that they managed to um, well to, uh, a couple of points firstly that they've managed to bring in a player who wants to be there marginally younger than Alexis. Um, he's got a point to prove. He uh, is the style of player that Arsenal and Arsene Wenger like. Of course, he's not a replacement for Sanchez, but if he can recapture the form that he displayed at Dortmund and with Aubameyang at Dortmund, um, then Arsenal have partic- potentially got a very good deal on their hands. The second reason of, for satisfaction is that they managed to pull off a swap deal and I've spoken to people high up at Arsenal who have who've said that you know January is a particularly uh, hard window to do any business of repute you know any any decent deals uh, let alone doing a swap deal uh, let alone on top of that doing two swap deals and on top of that 
doing one of those two swap deals involving three players. Um, and I was even he- hearing very vague, uh, unofficial whispers towards the end. And it was reported uh, the pre- day before on the 30th of, of January by David Woods in, in the Daily Star that David Luiz's name had come up in the Giroud conversations. So that would have been a fourth uh, or, or the third swap would have involved four players. Ugh. So, um, <laughs> so, so, so that, I mean, but back to your original point. Mkhitaryan, ab- absolutely someone that Arsenal would have liked to br- bring in. Um, the way it came about um, probably uh, gave them a sense of, of achievement, really. that They managed to pull it off in that way. Disappointed, of course, not to get any money in for Alexis Sanchez. But don't forget, although Sanchez is a superior player on far superior form at that point in time, that, that Mkhitaryan's market value was probably around £30 million pounds with, what, two and a half years left yeah, on his contract. the duration of his uh, contract, yeah. Yeah, and Sanchez was probably valued at about the same because of the five months left on mm. his contract. Um, and in terms of other targets, um, you're, you're, you start to get messy because you, you're, as you said, you're dealing with one agent here who who'd potentially proposed that deal. As soon as you go for Martial or... Um, anybody else at the club you're you know you're moving into different territory but they weren't on the table uh, this is that would have had to start from scratch yeah and i don't think any of those especially martial who's been on excellent form this season for manchester united would have had any chance of being offered to arsenal Mm. And the question then, of course, is even if you get £30 million, what can you spend £30 million on in the, in the January transfer window? If Alexis Sanchez goes, you've got to get a body in. Arsenal have done that, and hopefully Mkhitaryan will hit the ground running now. Yeah. That, that takes us to uh, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. Uh, links to him emerged pretty shortly after Arsenal lost to Bournemouth, which made people cynical um, because of the timing of the announcement of the interest in the player. Now, had, had, the, had the, the stories come from sections of the English press, you might say, okay, you could be a little bit cynical, but it seemed to be coming from Germany. We saw an Arsenal delegation, and we saw, I think, quite deliberately an Arsenal delegation in Germany, in Dortmund, Ivan Gazidis, Sven Mislintat, who is now the head of recruitment at Arsenal, um, former Borussia Dortmund scout as well, head of scouting there, and uh, Husfami, who is the, the, I don't know what we call him, what his official title is, contract guru, or he's, he's the guy who's doing the contracts anyway, um, yeah. that we brought in from, from Team Sky to give the, the backroom team a, an injection of whatever it needed. Um, they were there. They were in Dortmund. They were photographed in Dortmund. And when you see three senior executives from a football club at another football club, basically, you have to assume that they're there for a good reason, that they've been not necessarily invited, but they're there to talk. They're there to make yeah. things happen. They're there to do a deal. That was the 16th of January. And the Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang deal didn't get done until the 31st of January, uh, maybe agreed a day or two before that. Perhaps you could set me right on that. Um, But it seemed to me that it was done for more or less what Dortmund were looking for in the beginning. So why was there such a big delay? (laughs) <laughs> because they were dealing with Arsenal. Um, yeah. um, well, so your original point about uh, the Bournemouth match. Now, that defeat would not have pr- 
prompted the interest to begin no way no I mean, no that it, that it, that interest would have been fairly long-standing within relative terms uh, he would have been their top target coming into the january transfer window knowing there was a good chance of alexis sanchez leaving i think at one point it, it emerged that um, malcolm was perhaps the more realistic candidate so when i reported that malcolm is the top target i didn't mean that he was their first choice target I meant that he was uh, the one that it looked like they could obtain. The most likely, yeah. Because I don't think at that point it it looked particularly um, promising for Aubameyang, who hadn't really kicked off yet, (laughs) so (laughs) to speak, in in terms of his his dressing room behaviour. And so, yeah, Aubameyang was on the radar. I... In co- by contrast, I've I've got no doubt that the the Bournemouth match probably um, caused them to press the buttons, so to speak, and and pursue that interest um, uh, pretty urgently. And the Mislintat one's interesting because he clearly drove this deal and he had the contact. However, he's very sort of badly remembered for the way it ended at Dortmund that I think uh, he was banned from the training ground for a period he fell out spectacularly with Thomas Tuchel and several others at the club and he was persona non grata he was told not to speak to players and officials so um, so you could say that that would have made the deal more difficult um, but clearly it seems that that his um, local knowledge uh, helped the situation but these trips happen all the time. Ivan would have made those trips with Dick in the past. Um, It's not extraordinary. What's extraordinary is that people don't normally get photographed when they make those trips. Um, And it immediately put them in a tricky position that the world knew that they wanted this player. And when you are seen flying over, you know, most people don't want to see you come back without the player in your luggage. Um, and so that that put real pressure on them. And from that moment on, Arsenal would have been trying to negotiate as hard as they could. Um, and Dortmund would have been increasingly steadfast in, in their resistance and, and their desire to get the asking price. Mm. And frank, frankly, it's all January is, is far more often a seller's market than a buyer's market. Um, and so they knew that although they had a player who was causing an element of trouble on their hands, if Arsenal wanted the player, they would have to get up to or very close to the valuation. I, I know some people who have interviewed uh, Bamiang and worked with him, and he's not meant to be this poisonous um, rogue as he's sort of been portrayed in some quarters. Um, he, they suggested that he would have got over the disappointment of not moving in January and got back to playing well. And I think even in one of his interviews yesterday, he said, I've made some mistakes mistakes but it's never uh, you know I've, I've it's never been out of, i don't know the exact words out of spite or whatever it's never mm. been it's never been nasty and i think that was probably reflected in dortmund's statement when he left as well saying you know the last couple of weeks haven't been ideal but we wouldn't want to let that mask what's been an incredible 
chapter in their history. Um, and so I think that put Dortmund in a strong position and it meant Arsenal, who, you know, I, I think things are improving on the negotiation fr- front with with um, with the, the behind-the-scenes um, revamp that's been going on. But they were renowned around Europe for negotiating. And I quote people that have, have told me this, penny by penny, pound by pound. And that makes people um, irritated. Think, think, yeah. They, well, they, they were known on, in some certain deals to be, you know, a laugh. They got a reputation as being European football, the laughing stock of major European football clubs when it came to the negotiating table. And I've spoken to people who were just minded to walk away from the table, even on small deals, which you wouldn't even think about. Um, well, I mean, look, can I just sort of cut in there? Because you've mentioned a name a couple of times in the the process of, of this interview or during the course of this interview, uh, which is Dick Law, uh, a guy who, as far as everyone else is aware, had um, retired or had left the club back in September when his contract expired and gone back to the US because that's where his family was. That was the whole idea. But here we are because the new director of football, the guy uh, from Barcelona, Raul San, Sanlehi, Sanlehi, um, doesn't start until February 1st. There was a vacuum in terms of somebody to do those negotiations. So he was brought back in? Yeah, well, Dick Law came back in. Well, he, he continued on a consultancy basis as <laughs> soon as the, the news emerged that he, um, he was going to be leaving. And he, um, he helped smooth over the transition uh, so he worked with Hus Fami at the start, um, who I'm trying to think of how to how to describe him. Contract negotiator. Mm. I don't know if gu- Guru should uh, be bestowed upon anybody in this industry, but um, uh, yeah. So so Dick helped um, the transition period, and Dick's final day was yesterday. So he uh, he the 31st of January. So he has now left Arsenal after um, a very long spell. His association dates back to the mid-2000s uh, when I think he scouted in South America. And then in 2009, he became the sort of contract and transfer negotiator. So um, he came back into the fold. However, um, he wasn't working on the Aubameyang deal. Um, that was the delegation that you saw out there. Mm. Um, I don't know if Raul Sanlehi was already helping out I've got no idea I heard some suggestions that he had been involved in some meetings in Barcelona that took place over the potential signing of Malcolm but I I can't verify them I've just been told by a couple of people that he he was doing a bit of work already but yeah as you said he starts in earnest today the first of first of February um so I mean I I actually think it seems um, that some some words came out in the German media that Arsenal uh, had really annoyed Dortmund in this process uh, over Aubameyang. I spoke to a couple of people who knew the situation quite well who said that uh, Dortmund were pretty peeved at the way Arsenal were starting out so low and making slow progress towards coming up and some of their negotiating tactics and the way they tried to move money around and take some money off the player and move it to the club and vice versa Mm. um, really aggravated Dortmund. However, uh, in Arsenal's defence, I will say that that probably happens in pretty much every deal with pretty much every club. 
and they won't be an exception there. It's understandable that Arsenal are trying to get the best deal for themselves. And look, if we um, think about what Aubameyang was valued at in the last year or so, which I saw regular reports of him being worth 90 to 100 million pounds, euros, maybe even a bit higher, that Real Madrid or Barcelona would be the club he would go to. Arsenal getting him for 56 million pounds looks a pretty good deal for me. People will point to his age. People will point to the problems that he's had. People will point to the fact that he relies on his pace and that he's getting to the age where you may not be able to do that so much anymore. And why didn't bigger clubs and Champions League clubs come Mm. in for him if he's so good? But you only need to, you know... look at the words of, of German football experts and Raf Honigstein and those who have watched him closely to see that uh, this is a brilliant signing for Arsenal and I think they've got, a good pro- got him for a good price. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of. Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. So, okay, we've got him for a good price because the negotiation in the end worked out well and, you know, we we bargained them down pound by pound, penny by penny, uh, and got to a point where it was acceptable for them. However, the other side of that is that we got caught up in a transfer merry-go-round. I think that those were the um, the words that you used in one of your tweets. You, you mentioned a merry-go-round. Dortmund needed a replacement because they're losing their top goal scorer. Uh, they've got half a season of football to play and they need somebody to score goals. So they needed a striker. Um, as it turned out, uh, they looked at M- Michy Batshuayi from, from Chelsea. 
Um, Chelsea, of course, then needed a striker. They'd been looking around. They'd been looking at everyone from Peter Crouch to Andy Carroll, Ashley Barnes. I don't know how true all those stories were. I like to believe they're true because it just it speaks to another club being more mental at transfers than Arsenal. Um, yeah. But but we're in a situation where for Batshuayi to go to Dortmund, Chelsea need a replacement. Arsenal have a replacement in Olivier Giroud. How how much pressure was there on Arsenal to 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 do that deal? Was it a case that in order for Aubameyang to happen, Giroud had to go to Chelsea? Pretty much, yeah. So this all kicked off on Sunday evening because I remember it interrupted uh, the uh, the episode of McMafia that I was watching. <laughs> and um, I do have a life outside of football transfers. Come on, emerge. you're fooling nobody. Um, <laughs> and um, and th- at that point, uh, the plan was, and so clearly this was bubbling up over the weekend, um, was for um, Giroud to join Dortmund and Arsenal to get a Bamiang uh, for, for for the same fee that they ended up with. I think Giroud would have gone on loan. And I think that was the situation that all parties um, were moving towards. At that point, I think Arsenal were needing to convince Giroud to do it. Um, and by that point, clearly, there were already uh, representations to him from Chelsea. And so that's where it started to get really messy because he... Mm. Uh, perhaps understandably favoured um, a permanent move to another London club uh, which would have you know we know what happened with the Everton deal over the summer and and his family's desire to stay in the capital and that seemed to sort of win the day again Um, and and it was at that point that Chelsea uh, sorry Dortmund turned their attentions to Batshuayi and he was he was clearly keen to make that move on loan as well Um, so all the ducks were in a row at that stage. However, um, Chelsea were far from impressed at Ars- with Arsenal's asking price for Giroud of around thirty million pounds. <laughs> uh, um, and it's a, it's at that moment that um, they entertained the idea of uh, a loan swap for Fernando Llorente from Tottenham. Uh, but Tottenham, who were more than uh, willing to entertain offers for Llorente, were only interested in in losing, uh, letting him go on a permanent basis, and um, they would have happily taken back Shuai. But uh, so the clubs differed in their approach, but mm. also Batshuayi differed because he didn't want to make a move from second choice at, at Chelsea to second choice at Tottenham, uh, and so that's where the sort of the carousel ground to a halt and reached an impasse and um and it only started to move i'm losing track of my days now on the 30th when um when it's it it proved clear that arsenal weren't going to be able to get Giroud to move elsewhere and so they're negotiating stance would have softened somewhat and, mm. and and a more realistic fee came into play and I was told that it was all set to go on the 30th at 20 million pounds um, and everybody thought it was on um, until uh, Marina Granovskaya, the Chelsea director and transfer negotiator started trying to push the um, 
push the asking price for Giroud down. She was uh, she was Arsenaling Arsenal. Yeah, she was. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> playing them at, at their own game. And, well, that's um, the way it and goes. Fun, funnily enough, they didn't like that. Um, so they now know how other clubs <laughs> feel about them. And um, and yeah, they didn't take well to that. And I was told that it, it, it was uh, a straight at one point anyway, a straight situation of. Um, you pay the twenty million pounds, or we're going to pack him off to to Dortmund and just do the deal with them, and and then you're stuck with Batshuayi and you're cut out of the deal entirely. But then it still would have been tough for Arsenal because they would. There's nothing forcing Giroud, who was happy at Arsenal, he yeah. wasn't pressing for any move. Uh, he would have had to agree to a move to Dortmund. So that's when um, think sort of sense was seen, and and the eighteen or fee in the region of eighteen seventeen point five million. Pounds was agreed and it was done and dusted. Um, I mean, it, it strikes me that Giroud is a player that Arsenal, under different circumstances, would have kept because he's a good striking option. There's the Europa League to play for. He provides something of a plan B. Is there perhaps a lesson to be learned from an Arsenal point of view that maybe if you are going to do, if you're going to negotiate, sometimes there are consequences that you can't see that perhaps when they were trying to force Dortmund down, they never foresaw a situation where they were going to have to use a very popular player, a very effective player as part of uh, as part of a deal to get the, the one deal that they wanted done. Yeah, I'm sort of split on this one because Arsenal loved him. He was very popular at the club among, among the players and um most of all, with the manager, mm. Arsene Wenger, has always uh, talked of his admiration and, and love for Giroud. Um, but they were willing to do a deal for him to leave in the summer. Mm. You know, Everton was said to be said to have been close. So it's not like he was such a prized asset that 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 they had never considered him leaving before now. Now. Uh, his his you know goal scoring record was excellent and his contributions off the bench last season spectacular i think he's only second in premier league history behind Jermaine Defoe for goals scored as a substitute um he uh he he, he really uh endeared himself to, to arsenal fans on the whole but you know we all know that there were times where fans and, and media were very frustrated with Giroud as well he suddenly became more of a cult hero when the Chelsea <laughs> links came up yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and it, and, it, and it is quite sad you know for Arsenal to see him go but I don't think it's as you know if he if he hadn't been going to Chelsea it probably would have been a bit less bad for Arsenal fans and um and okay, there's always going to be it's always going to be tinged with sad, sadness that a good player left. I think the more pertinent point is is what you said about losing the type of player. So you may have heard Julian Laurens on the um, on the European Football podcast on the BBC Five Live this week said that Arsenal could have signed Aubameyang last summer instead of Lacazette, but they went for Lacazette for the lower price, who Arsene Wenger was apparently never convinced by, totally convinced by. Mm. Um, and if they'd got a Bamiang, then they, you know, they probably would have had the better striker then. And then Giroud was the alternative option off the bench and they would have never got into this position. Um, and it, it does leave them... It's a bit bizarre that they've now got Lacazette and... Bamiang and Nojiru. Uh, you've got somebody like Paul Merson saying that they should have sold Lacazette, which is a bit bizarre. Um, and uh, but there is a 
a school of thought within Arsenal and, and a few people I've spoken to who know both players really well, Lacazette and Aubameyang, from working with them in France or observing them closely in France, who are suggesting that um, Aubameyang is going to play in the Alexis position. And I'm not saying he's a winger, but the, the left channel of you know of the three forwards, mm. with Lacazette in, in the middle, Ozil to the right, um, slightly, you know, of centre, uh, and Mkhitaryan in behind, or you could interchange Mkhitaryan and and uh, Ozil. Mm. So I agree with many of the people who say it's bizarre and Arsenal, of course, uh, could well miss that option off the bench because they don't have a player at the football club in the mould of Giroud now, a target man who can hold the ball up and, and head it. Um, you know, you might say that Welbeck could do some of that, but clearly he's a completely different player. Yeah. So I think that's quite staggering that they haven't got a player at the football club who can do that. However, they can't really complain about their attacking options now. No. I think if you can complain around about one area, it, it's the sort of defensive midfielder and defence. Mm. Well, that brings me on to my next question. I've got just a couple of quick questions before um, sure. before we finish up. Attacking options are amazing and it's great to see exciting attacking talent at the club and anyone who isn't uh, thrilled by the signing of Obama Yang and the potential that he could link up with Mkhitaryan, Mesut Ozil with his new contract um, is another huge boost for the club. So from an attacking point of view, you know, there are options. You, you know, Lacazette is there. There's Iwobi there. There's Welbeck there. Aaron Ramsey's an attacking midfield player as well. There's some young attacking talent there too. Um, Eddie Nketiah, um, not trying to get ahead of anything, but Reese Nelson as well. So there's, there's, yeah. there's plenty there to choose from from an attacking point of view. But Arsenal fans will be concerned by the fact that midfield and defence remain untouched or remain unaddressed in this transfer window when they have been very clearly areas that have caused the team some problems. Were there, to your knowledge, any attempts to bring in players in those positions? I saw that Alan Pardew was talking today about how Arsenal basically left it too late. They put in a deadline day bid for Johnny Evans, which was rejected out of hand. Um, and he said, look, we told them, you know, if you if you give us a bid on deadline day, it's got to be crazy or you can just get lost. Um, were were there any attempts to bring in players in midfield or defence beyond that? This is a really strange one because I think we've spoken about on the Arscast before that that they tried to bring in a midfielder or, or, or Arsene Wenger decided late in the summer window that he would like to try and bring in a midfielder and there wasn't enough time. Mm. And so surely... And and the situation hasn't particularly improved other than the return to fitness of, of Jack Wilshere. But in terms of a, a dominating holding midfielder, which I think was the sort of thing they were looking at, at right at the end of the window, uh, the summer window, um, that they didn't go for that now. So the situation, you could argue, in that area has deteriorated because Granite Xhaka, you will have all seen the the graphic in the times mm. you know his his issues with tracking back i mean it only goes to highlight the situation and one of the holding midfield options has been sold um in francis, francis cockerlam mm. so uh, i heard nothing about a holding midfielder in this window i could be wrong others may may uh, differ in their views uh, and understanding but i i heard nothing about that of course um mohammed al neni came into 
sort of a little bit of form just recently. He was somebody that I was told last summer that w- would have been made available for transfer if there was a, a reasonable offer. But more recently, I've been told they're looking at giving him a new contract. <laughs> so <laughs> it shows how quickly yeah. th- things can change. But no, I didn't. Um, I didn't. I didn't hear any rumours or suggestions or, or right. um, uh, anything about a holding midfielder. Okay. Perhaps that's a combination of Wilshire and uh, El Nenny yeah. being more prominent. And, and um, maybe and- maybe Ainsley Maitland-Niles, as somebody who has made a breakthrough into the first team, that. Uh, as much as he's talked about um, wanting to do business, he, he also was very clear this month or last month anyway about talking about the need to give young players a chance and to develop players and for clubs to produce their own players. So perhaps there's an element of that? Well, yeah, but there's no suggestion that Arsene Wenger wants to play Ainsley Maitland-Niles in central yeah, midfield, but- which, <laughs> which people are fi- finding quite bizarre. Um, and with 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 good reason, and also it's it's looking especially in attacking areas. I know Lacazette's a little bit long, younger, but it's very strange to see Arsenal looking s- such an old uh, older uh, team these days. When when you know the premise of Arsene Wenger's squad was always to be young and and to try and develop from within, and and uh, you know we we used to talk about Arsenal. It feels like many years ago now mm. um, for how they were breaking records for the youngest Premier League starting eleven, uh, and it seems that's com- been completely abandoned now. Um, if we are in the delivery phase, as it was coined a year or two ago, um, then clearly the the signings are are being brought in to try and you know pick off the trophies where they can, the, the League Cup, Cup final coming up, and maybe if they can progress in the Europa League. Although I was told that these signings are seen by especially the new uh, appointments behind the scene. And, you know, Ivan Gazidis bringing in a new head of recruitment, head of football relations, head of contracts, etc. These people are seeing uh, these new signings, Aubameyang, Mkhitaryan, as sort of being, they're laying the foundations for the start of bringing Arsenal back to being seriously competitive for... um, major honours Champions League sure. the Premier League and that's going to take you know a year or two two years you know a year and a half uh, you know we don't know the exact time but 2019 really right they don't I don't I don't think you know you could say that's that's obvious because then they're probably not going to get back into the Champions League this year so they can't win it next year um, but and with City so prominent at the moment there's a good chance that Arsenal won't get to the Premier League title next year but I, I've I've heard 2019 mentioned quite a lot. So these these players are stuck are being sort of um, brought together as as being the start of a new a new push to bring Arsenal back to competitive level from sort of 2019 onwards. And and if Arsene Wenger or whoever the manager is going to be can can bring that blend of of those experienced players and as you say the Maitland Nars and Ketia Nelson those youth players then maybe they are onto something mm. but it, it is it is strange not not to see as you say Maitland Nars given a, a chance in the position we we thought he he would be best for but come on Arsene Wenger knows far better than than us on on where these guys are best suited for his sure. team and you know someone like um um uh, Kolasinac ha, ha, hasn't really 
worked out as a signing despite some really promising um, moments at the start and so perhaps he's having to improvise by giving yeah. uh, giving Maitland-Niles time, time at left back in terms of the defensive areas and, and back to your Johnny Evans point um, yeah they, they clearly wanted to bolster in defence and that was exacerbated by um, by the the defeat at Swansea um, it, it cast my mind back a few years ago to when they weren't looking for a striker. And I, I got quite a lot of stick about this at the time. They were not looking for a striker going into the final few days of the transfer window. But then they lost at Leicester on a Sunday. And suddenly uh, they there was a board meeting and they decided they would try and go for a striker because they were terrible in front of goal. And then the Falcao deal happened at Man United and Welbeck became available and they got him. Mm. And, and it, it was a similar sort of... I felt it was a similar sort of situation with the defence this time. Of course, they were aware of the ongoing problems with um, Koscielny's Achilles and the struggles that some of the others have had um, for form. Uh, but it, it, it's almost like with Arsenal, the um, it takes a really bad result, like the 8-2 at Old Trafford, I think, in 2012, yeah. um, to really knock them into life in the transfer market and yeah. say, we've really got to go out and, and get someone. People... people Go on. So I mean, I'm just going to say people will say that the, the, the club is reactive in that regard, that there's not yeah, so much yeah, proaction. I mean, that, I mean that's, a, that's an easy thing to say. It's, it's, it's quite obvious uh, that, yeah, <laughs> they, they look reactive. I, I, but I also think they would have been looking in these areas before, but it's kind of like the, the final straw because Wenger is very faithful to his players. He gives them as many chances as possible and he wants them to come good. He wants to give them every opportunity and, and perhaps if we're going to give the club the benefit of the mm. doubt, it's waiting for that final straw, the straw that bro- broke the camel's backs, so to speak. Um, and it's not a good way to op- operate clearly, leaving things so late and, mm. and not addressing problems proactively when they need to be. Johnny Evans was on the radar last summer. They, they, certainly explored bringing him in and and were trying quite hard at one point and Debussy was offered in the opposite uh, sorry uh, uh, I understood it at the time that Mustafi was up that's offered right in the yeah, opposite yeah, yeah. direction yeah. I, I was told that by somebody very high up at West Brom he was mentioned in conversations so then he comes back into the equation on this occasion we got some understanding that um, Arsenal were offering a much better package to Johnny Evans than Manchester City were but clearly they were going to try and cut a, a low deal with West Brom. The reason being that all the information coming to me from Arsenal, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm not a Swiss ramble, I don't know the, the facts and figures to a T, mm. but the message coming was that after the Aubameyang signing, there's going to be very little money for major recruitment. And that means a, a large transfer fee and a large salary. And the reason why it hotted up at the end was because Giroud went for uh, 17.5, 18000000 million. So suddenly, it's no coincidence that they did make a last-minute push because they did have some money. Now, I I don't know if I'm just adding two and two together, but I I, I was guided, even though Wenger said in his press conference last week, or he suggested, and and it came out in the papers, that there was still money to spend after Aubameyang. I was always sort of being led to believe and, and quite firmly that there would be no significant money after the um, Aubameyang deal. Giroud goes and so suddenly with no coincidence the Johnny Evans um, suggestions start up again and that's been confirmed by Alan Pardew 
today and uh, it seems like it might have been a a fairly derisory offer i heard whispers and it was nothing more than whispers from a a couple of sources that that i speak to and and it there was never anything concrete it was just suggestions that arsenal may have been looking into the um the david luis uh, possibility that david woods had mentioned in the daily star and also costas manolas who uh, they go way back with because i think they they tried to sign him a couple of summers ago um before uh, mustafi came in um and whatever the truth was to all of that they were trying to get someone in at the last minute and and it didn't happen mm. and and that will leave a nagging sort of uh, uh, disappointment in in the minds of Arsenal fans because um, again, although it was a good window for Arsenal, they didn't finish with exactly what they needed to to make them competitive this season. But you never know what what they've done in attack could could inspire an upturn in form. Mm. Okay, I've got two very quick things. Just sure. uh, final uh, question, just on Sven Mislinta, Ivan Gazidis, Husfami being front and centre in terms of Arsenal doing transfers, is that a sign that things are changing? The dynamics at Arsenal are changing regardless of how long Arsene Wenger stays at the club. This is going to be the way that transfers are are done now. These guys are the ones who are going to do the recruitment, the negotiation, the uh, the deals. Obviously, to some extent, with the... I won't say the blessing of the manager because you don't want to foist on a player, uh, foist on a manager or a player he doesn't want. And, you know, there's no suggestion that Arsene Wenger is unhappy with with, uh, Mkhitaryan or or Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, nothing like that. But it is different. It is a different setup. It is uh, more public that Arsene Wenger is not necessarily the man calling all the shots. Yeah, yeah, that's clearly the case. um, That his power... Um, is being diluted. I don't think that's a secret, um, and that's because there are there are, as you say, there are people coming in who Ivan Gazidis is handing significant power to. So, and there are people who I've spoken to around Arsene Wenger who um, who say that that's not a bad thing. You know, he, that was the situation with David Dean. Everybody's been. Uh, baying for a, a David Dean type figure to come back in, many of them baying for David Dean to come back in, <laughs> and that would have, that would have dilute, diluted Wenger's power. It, 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 interestingly, conversely, David Dean's departure uh, and and a sort of lack of a direct replacement um, gave Arsene Wenger more power than ever before at a time where he needed to have that dilution more than ever before as the game. Mm. And the transfer market was getting more difficult. He really needed the the, the support and the structure and and the the sort of right hand man that that Dean was. And that's the that's what he's been lacking. So in theory, these appointments. I know it's popular to sort of create some sort of um, suggestion of of hostility between Wenger and Mislintat after those comments about German lower league players and stuff like that. But uh, <laughs> I don't know their personal relationship. They're obviously still getting to know each other because he didn't know Miss Lintat previously. Mm. But it, it's a support network that in theory should help Wenger. Now, I've got no doubt and no, I don't think anyone does that, I, that Ivan Gazidis as the chief executive is creating a structure 
for the future and that future logically might not involve Arsene Wenger whether it's this summer the summer after or beyond if things go spectacularly well and he signs yet another contract but I think they're preparing more than ever and uh, and laying the foundations for the future of the club whether that includes Arsene Wenger or doesn't but one thing is for absolute certain Arsene Wenger still has the final say on everything at Arsenal so there is no deal that is coming in or out of the club without his approval. He will stop any deal he, he wants to stop and he will potentially start any deal he wants to start. These guys are growing in prominence and power, mm. but it doesn't mean that Arsene Wenger is, um, is any less authoritative even though sure. some of his some of his standing is is perhaps being diluted, and um, I don't think he would have a particular problem with that. All right, okay. Well, I think that's that sounds about right. Final thing I want to ask you is, um, you know, as somebody on whom people uh, I won't say rely, but you know, they when you when you treat people, take it as gospel, David. They hang on your every word, <laughs> and. Uh, Particularly in this transfer window, there has been a reaction to, to, to you when, when you tweet things. You have generated um, hundreds, thousands of, of memes. Um, how does it feel when you see those things every time you post something, just a litany of replies with, um, I have to admit, some of these pictures are absolutely hilarious? <laughs> Is it going to sound really boring to say that I, I, I'm completely sort of impervious towards it. It's sort of it. Uh, I, I, it's, I find so you sort of look and well, I mean I, this is going to be a really boring answer. I'm incredibly busy. I don't just report on um, on Arsenal. Sure, um, uh, I've got a lot of different things going on as a correspondent at the BBC, and so um, and so y- you you sort of of course look towards the notifications to see if anybody's pointing out things that you've you've uh, any mistakes you've made or any any useful um, comments that can add to it or whatever and as soon as you see this this sort of um, number of memes you you sort of have a chuckle and then get on with whatever you're doing i i, I certainly with with a, a very young family of two sort of tear away boys i don't um uh, have time to go scrolling down there sure. uh, and sit uh, and sit there admiring or, or, um, or uh, despairing, despairing at, the world. <laughs> at, at what I'm seeing. I, I think my, my, my wife and kids are uh, annoyed enough at the amount of time I spend on, on my phone and laptop and, and sure. in work and around, around the country and around the world. So, Sadly, I don't have time to indulge in it, and I, I, I certainly think when you start to um, start to indulge in stuff like that, you kind of probably ruin the appeal. And I think it's probably best if I just toe the I don't know the BBC line and stick professional, get on with your job, and and let let everyone have the fun they want. And it's just a uh, it it's just sport at the end of the day and fun. So sometimes yeah. we take all of this too seriously, and uh, 
let it roll. All right. Well, if people are having fun, well, that, that's a good thing. And I think that's probably a rabbit hole. You, you don't need to go down, in fairness. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, it's been uh, brilliant, as always, talking to you. Thank you so much for a the pleasure. time and, uh, and the insight. And look, we'll, uh, we'll catch up with you. It won't be August 31st. It'll be before the, the start of the new season because of the changes in the in the mm. transfer window rules. So sometime in, right. in mid-August. Um, yeah. We'll catch you then for all the Arsenal penny-pinching, David. Thanks a million. It'll be a pleasure. No worries, Andrew. Take care. Right, well, look, there you go. That was the story of Arsenal's incredible January transfer window. It's all changed from an attacking point of view. It's the same in midfield and defence. We'll just have to see how it all comes together. If it clicks, if the manager can find a way to make it work, if he can get these attacking pieces of the puzzle perhaps set up in a way that offsets some of our defensive weaknesses. But of course, those players behind those attackers have got to be the ones who give them the service and the platform to do what it is we hope they can do. Anyway, we'll wait and see what happens. It's uh, certainly going to be interesting. My thanks, as always, to David for sitting down and giving me the time and the inside story into what's gone on at Arsenal in the transfer window. Whatever happens or whatever doesn't happen, it's always kind of interesting. You know, I think we support a, a football club that's a bit mad. I'm not, you know, being critical. It just is a bit mad the way it does things and the way it continues to do things and the way it will probably continue to do things. So any little bit of sense we can get out of what it is they do and how they try and do it is always very welcome. We will talk to David again, of course. Thanks to all of you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. Please give us a rating or a review on iTunes if you like it. Uh, That helps. Five-star reviews and uh, ratings on iTunes. Uh, They push us up the iTunes charts and the more people that listen to the podcast, obviously, the better. Uh, So tell your friends. If you've got Arsenal friends who've never listen to the Arsecast, point them in this direction. That would be uh, really very much appreciated as well. Anyway, we've got a game against Everton tomorrow. Uh, the return of Theo Walcott. Let's hope it's not one of those returns from a former player that we go, oh God, you knew he was going to score for fuck's sake. I hope that's not the case. I really, really hope that's not the case. Again, thanks for listening. Uh, we'll catch you on Monday. Myself and James will have another Arsecast extra then. So until then, take it easy. Cheers. Bye-bye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.